Recently, the CDC released a new report highlighting that cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis have increased for the sixth consecutive year, reaching a new all-time high across the country. In particular, congenital syphilis cases have increased by 279% since 2015. Why is this happening? What is occurring at the New York State level, and how have our clinicians been responding to this crisis? I'm Linda Wong, and I'm your host for this episode of Any Positive Change. In this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Margie Urban, an infectious disease physician who has been a leading expert on sexual health clinical education and has been on the front line of STI treatment and prevention in New York. My name is um, Margie Urban, and I am an infectious disease physician. I live in Rochester, New York, and I am on faculty at the University of Rochester um, School of Medicine here in Rochester. My area of interest in infectious diseases for many years has been um, sexually transmitted infections, Mm -hmm. and I wear a couple of different hats uh, in that area. Uh, Right now, I'm actually sitting in my office at the Monroe County Sexually Transmitted Infection Clinic, where I I have been the medical director of that clinic for for many years now, about 20-some years. And... I also wear the hat where I'm the principal investigator for the New York State AIDS Institute's Clinical Education Initiative Sexual Health Center of Excellence. Wow, that's great. That's many different things that you're doing on a daily basis, Margie. (laughs) But um, it sounds like everything that you do really converges around um, sexually transmitted infections and sexual health in general. Yes. Yeah. Uh, STIs and HIV, I would say. Okay. Most of what I do. You know, I'd love to spend some time during today's episode talking with you and picking your brain really about what is happening both on a New York state and federal level with respect to sexually transmitted infections and sexual health. So um, maybe we can start with talking about um, like what what are the top concerns with respect to sexual health that all clinicians should be aware of? And are there any sexually transmitted infections that are rising in the U.S.? Actually, almost all of them are rising in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So I I guess that would be a a top concern. The CDC actually released some new statistics uh, on uh, earlier this week where they uh, did some, some modeling using data from 2018 and they ended up coming out with a statistic that uh, essentially one in five people in the U.S. have an STI mm. at any given time. So for 2018, that totaled 68 million infections. Wow. That's not really all reportable sexually transmitted infections. That's usually what we think about when we think about the numbers for STIs because they're the ones that we have data on. Mm. Uh, that's syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. And they have all gone up uh, year after year, really, for the last several years. Hmm. So that's um, that's true nationally and and in New York State. I think another big concern, other than than just sort of the rates rising, are that uh, some of the infections that uh, can be more complicated, like syphilis, which which might have some some uh, complications downstream from the time that you get infected Mm -hmm. where you might have um, 
long-term health consequences, they have been rising uh, and syphilis had really been at uh, low points, you know, some years ago. So that's a concern that they're rising. And uh, as they rise, uh, we've had actually infections in newborns Mm. at at very high rates compared to the last 50 years. So, So that's a concern. Yeah. Another big concern, which is true of a lot of infectious diseases, is the rise of um, uh, antimicrobial resistance, antibiotic resistance, right. and and that's um, that's a major worry with gonorrhea, and with another um, sort of newer STI, one that we're we're maybe not as familiar with, known as Mycoplasma genitalium. Marjorie, you mentioned that rates of sexually transmitted infections such as chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis are rising year after year. Right. Can you share why this may be happening? Well, um, that's, a, that's a hard question to answer. Um, one problem with, with sexually transmitted infections is that most of them actually don't cause very prominent symptoms. And so it's hard to know how many there are if you're not doing very widespread testing. Mm-hmm. So some people argue that maybe the rise is that our testing has uh, become better. Uh, we actually have had some newer technologies over the last 10 years or so that, that are more sensitive. So um, they're more likely to diagnose an infection. And our patterns of testing have changed so that we do tests. Um, it used to be if you got tested for STIs, you only got genital tests. But now because people have lots of different kinds of sex. Um, it depends on what kind of sex you're having, what right. tests are done. So now there's uh, pharyngeal tests and rectal tests that are also done. So that's one argument that maybe maybe we're better at diagnosing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people uh, also make the argument that um, PrEP has changed things. So PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis to prevent uh, HIV. And as as PrEP has rolled out, uh, most people who take PrEP also get very routine STI tests, so right. uh, usually every three months. And if if they had previously had infections because they didn't have symptoms that, that were missed, but now we're checking four times a year, that could also contribute to the rise. Hmm. Uh, some studies have shown that some people on PrEP actually do change their behavior somewhat, so might be a little bit more at risk for getting infections that they wouldn't have had before. So that that may be another reason. Hmm. And there's lots of um, exploration into the role of um, stigma and um, other other factors that um, impact uh, health, like uh, that, that are often called social determinants of health. And what their role might be in um, the rise in STIs. So um, factors like poverty or homelessness Mm. or um, substance use. And in particular, uh, using substances, whether it's alcohol or some other uh, substance, that has also been associated with some increase in in STIs uh, in in the last few years. Yeah, but it sounds like it's really multivectorial. Yes, definitely multifactorial. Yeah. And I, I think it would be hard to point to one thing. Yeah, but also multifactorial in multiple directions in the sense that it sounds like we have better tests so we're that are more sensitive. We're able to pick up things that we weren't able to pick up years ago. Um, 
and maybe also some increased access to care and diagnosis as a result of um, PrEP uptake, um, but also in the other direction as well with stigma and other barriers to seeking care that may prevent people from uh, discussing sexual health topics with their providers and um, with that leading to diagnosis and treatment. So it's, it sounds really complex. Yes. And I guess another big factor is that uh, over years, um, the, the public health funding that was devoted to um, local health departments and um, clinics that that particularly uh, treat STIs have decreased. Mm. Um, so uh, that's another reason that's often listed as, as maybe less access, uh, particularly yeah. for people that, that lack access in, in other ways than maybe are uninsured or underinsured. And how has STI treatment been impacted by antimicrobial resistance? Have there been any recent changes to treatment recommendations to respond to resistance patterns? Yeah, well, gonorrhea is a good example. It's a, it's a, it's an organism, a bacteria that has adapted to avoid really every antibiotic that we have thrown at it. And um, until very recently, the uh, the CDC had recommended treating gonorrhea with two drugs uh, using ceftriaxone at a dose of 250 milligrams plus azithromycin one gram, mm-hmm. with the idea being that you would you would try to hit the organism from two different locations, um, kind of like we treat tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. And then um, that recommendation changed. And uh, in the MMWR, in um, I think it was on December 17th, there were new gonorrhea treatment guidelines released. And because of... Um, worries about uh, the rise of antimicrobial resistance in gonorrhea and in many bacteria, the new recommendation is only to use a single drug, ceftriaxone, and not use azithromycin, and to increase the dose of that ceftriaxone to 500 milligrams. Mm. We actually used to treat gonorrhea with 125 milligrams of ceftriaxone. So this is the second time the dose has increased. if somebody also has co-infection with chlamydia, the new recommendation is to use doxycycline um, as the second agent rather than using azithromycin. And, yes. and is azithromycin now kind of off the table completely? Uh, it's an alternate. Uh, it, so it's off the table as dual treatment for gonorrhea without, um, with, when you know that the, the person does not have chlamydia. Mm-hmm. But say you have somebody who does have both conditions, so they need a second antibiotic to treat chlamydia. Mm-hmm. The preferred antibiotic would be doxycycline. But if there was some worry that um, maybe there would be trouble taking an antibiotic, the dose of that is twice a day for a week. So uh, some people just really can't bring themselves to take a, a pill every day. So mm-hmm. if there's some worry that the uh, the person wouldn't be able to finish the drug. You could use azithromycin mm-hmm. or doxycycline is generally avoided in pregnancy. So um, then azithromycin would be the alternate. Later, I asked Margie about New York State specific health alerts related to sexual health in 2020 and the impact that the COVID pandemic might have had on access to testing and treatment. There was an alert that came out in um, July that uh, from this is from the State Department of Health, and uh, it was a health advisory 
talking about uh, increases in gonorrhea in Monroe County, which is where I am in, in Rochester, mm-hmm. and also in the counties in the Capital District region, so in the counties surrounding um, Albany. And this alert noticed that um, in the first three months of the year, so really before COVID, there was already a, a pretty dramatic increase in the number of gonorrhea cases um, of around 70 percent hmm. uh, compared to the first three months in 2019. So uh, the alert really wanted to tell clinicians in these areas that um, the gonorrhea cases were going up and then the pandemic happened and uh, many, many health facilities, as you know, really um, tried to minimize contact mm-hmm. and, and people stayed home and socially distanced. And because of the public health nature of um, many STI clinics, uh, a number of those around the state really uh, shut down or had very minimal hours because the personnel were also the same personnel who were working on COVID. Mm-hmm. So they really got redeployed. So um, this health alert was was you know really saying you know, take note that gonorrhea is rising. We, we don't have the figures yet of um, f- for since COVID, but as I said earlier, a lot of times STIs are, are really minimally symptomatic. So if you're not doing a test, you won't get the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So it's possible this, we're not really going to be t- able to tell what's actually happening in the community because testing shut down because of COVID in a lot of places. Hmm. Gonorrhea, gonorrhea in um, cis men who might have a urethritis, that, that is usually symptomatic. So most of those people would present for treatment. But gonorrhea in the throat or in other sites or in cis women is often asymptomatic. So if you weren't doing the testing, you might miss it. So the numbers for the rest of 2020 are going to be pretty hard to interpret, I think. Yeah. So it sounds like it's really hard to know what happened during the pandemic and the lockdown and what kind of an impact it has on um, right. STI right. diagnosis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Our clinic here was was able to stay open. Um, we actually have a contract. So, um, so we weren't the people who were redeployed to COVID the way so many were. So mm-hmm. we were able to stay open, although we did modify things the way lots of places did with more telehealth and um, did some triaging, especially early in the spring. Mm-hmm. But we actually saw more gonorrhea this year than we did last year, uh, 2020 compared to 2019, even though we saw only about two thirds of the patients. Hmm. So I, I think that increase is real um, yeah. in, in that we, we were seeing so many cases. Yeah. That's definitely concerning. And have there been other health alerts at the New York state level? Yeah, there was one other one around STIs that came out in October, uh, also about Monroe County. Uh, And this one was about um, a rise in HIV cases um, that was noticed compared to last year. And uh, it does turn out, at least in the preliminary data, that it looks like that was real, that there were more new HIV cases in 2020 than in 2019. Um, in our sexual health clinic, we actually saw uh, twice the number that we see. Um, and it was in the county, again, these are preliminary data, but about a 60% increase. Wow. So um, 
some of those in the health alert, they, they were able to, um, to figure out that about 10% of the ones they were aware of in the health alert were new, very recent infections. Mm-hmm. Um, they did give a few details that um, there, there were also um, quite a number that had uh, a history of an STI mm-hmm. in, in uh, the past, about 40%. And there was also maybe slightly more who uh, reported some um, who reported that they use drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, this is all very preliminary, so it's it's hard to really make broad statements. But but there was concern that there was a rise in HIV cases. Hmm. And it sounds like potentially. I know everything is preliminary, but potentially in people who use drugs and also people who may have had a history of an STI. Right. Okay. Right. Exactly. Now, so with HIV, I guess that's always, um, you know, it depends on how you look at it. Like if somebody has HIV, we absolutely want them to have a diagnosis and to rapidly become treated and, uh, you know, really have a normal life expectancy. So in one sense, you know, it's good that that the testing was done, even in the, this period of a pandemic, to pick those up. In another sense, especially with recent infection, you know that that we have other ways to prevent HIV, like PrEP or PEP, and so sort of a failure of those things. And you know how how could we have have maybe intervened? Mm-hmm. So um, there's a lot of um, we're doing a lot of education locally in our community to to help clinicians know that uh, this is happening, the clinicians and the, and the community, really, to uh, to get the word out. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of wondering, since that alert came out in October 2020, and that's sort of, what is that? That's like six months into the pandemic, right? And right. I think we're all kind of wondering, could, could a rise in HIV cases, as the one you're describing, be related to decreased access to sterile injection equipment? Yeah, and that's something we've we've brought up locally also um, that 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 it, that is a concern. Yeah, um, there has been a rise in uh, overdose uh, visits and and actual um, uh, naloxone administration. Mm-hmm. So um, so there there may be some link there. Again, it's all it's all still preliminary. But. Yeah. Given the rise in STIs and HIV. What is happening at the state level to address these rising cases? Yeah, actually, there's there's quite a bit happening. The State Department of Health, the AIDS Institute, has really, I think, embraced the concept of of promoting sexual health as as a way to tackle some of these issues. And um, I think there's a long history in the management of sexually transmitted diseases of um, there being a lot of stigma, of, of even stigma maybe trying to be a motivation to avoid an STI because of shame. Mm-hmm. And um, and really the field has evolved to be one of health promotion and uh, the, uh, the state health department ha- has really embraced that. So there's been um, a lot of activity to... Um, to get the word out to both clinicians and um, community members. So um, with, with the develop, development of, of really education programs mm-hmm. here, both at the community and clinicians. And in policy ways, there have been um, changes. One example would be um, very recent changes in, 
in the law regarding expedited partner therapy. Mm-hmm. So I, I think people are really familiar with post-exposure prophylaxis to prevent HIV right. or maybe post-exposure pro- prophylaxis to prevent hepatitis A or hepatitis B, but, but not so familiar unless you're in, living in this STI world of post-exposure prophylaxis to prevent STIs. Mm-hmm. But that's long been a mainstay of um, the management of STI epidemics is to, to treat exposed partners regardless of their test result, because they could still be incubating infection. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't used to be called post-exposure prophylaxis. We, we called it epidemiologic treatment, but, but really it's PEP for STIs. And one way to do that is to um, allow the, the person, the patient who has the diagnosed STI to deliver that therapy to their partner mm-hmm. rather than relying on the clinician to have to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's called expedited partner therapy. That had been legal in the state of New York uh, for, for people who had chlamydial infection where the partner could give a prescription or give actual medicine to the patient, could give it to their partner without the clinician ever seeing the partner. Mm-hmm. But in 2020, the state law changed and now it's actually legal for um, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas. Mm. So um, as part of the CEI program, we are um, really trying to to get the word out that, that this has changed. And um, particularly in this era of COVID where uh, people are, are maybe reluctant to engage in healthcare, mm. that, that this would be a way to get treatment to expose partners. So... How can a provider send a second prescription to the pharmacy for the patient's partner in order to provide EPT? The law actually specifies that um, the second prescription, if you know the name and Mm -hmm. date of birth and so on of the partner, you you fill it out for that person. But even if you don't know that name, you can just write partner number one or partner A. The only requirement by the law is that you have the dose of the medicine that's needed and the and you know, the number of pills and that you write in the text of the prescription EPT. Mm. And then by law, um, the prescriber is protected and the pharmacist is protected mm-hmm. um, that, that you're following the law, even though you don't actually have a chart on who the, the partner. Uh, it is also required as part of the law that you give education educational materials about the medication and the need to to be uh, screened or seen in follow-up to give to the partner. And um, the state health department and the New York City health department both have materials available on their website that you can download mm. or have shipped to you as a provider so that you can give that to the to the patient to give to their partner. And you can even do it by giving like a URL so that the Hmm. partner just needs to log in and and view the educational materials. That's great to hear. It sounds like such an important initiative to increase access to much needed treatment. I'm wondering how, how and how is this functionally possible through the electronic medical record system. Yes, you have immediately gone to the main trouble with this. <laughs> so so this, um, this used to, it's been legal for, um, for chlamydia in New York since 2010, and it's been recommended by CDC, I think, since 2006. So it's been done long before electronic records, and it was very easy when you had a paper prescription. Um, 
There are now some institutions have developed workarounds within their electronic record to to essentially have kind of a dummy chart um, where where it would be an EPT chart. But with that, you would have to know the right pharmacy to send that electronic prescription. Um, one other workaround has been that the state has allowed an exception to the rule for electronic prescriptions, and and EPT is one of those ex- exceptions. So you can actually order paper prescriptions to have. Uh, just for the purpose of uh, giving EPT prescriptions. Okay. One other way that you can do this is it's allowed by the law to actually give medication, mm-hmm. not not just a prescription, mm-hmm. but to actually dispense the medication. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to follow all the rules about medications, but um, but you can hand the index patient medications for their partner or partners uh, for them to deliver to them the actual medicines. Mm. And, and that, but that's only possible if your clinic is able to dispense medications from the practice. Correct. Correct. Gotcha. Which many, um, which many dedicated STI clinics are. Mm-hmm. So, so that is, um, that is something that is done. And, and that's actually in the studies, that's the most effective. Mm, to physically um, give it to them. Right. To, yeah. Right. Exactly. What are some other federal changes in sexual health recommendations that you can share with our audience? There have been very strong recommendations because of, uh, we mentioned earlier, congenital syphilis, uh, syphilis in a newborn, that um, locally, because of the rise in syphilis cases, our local institutions have changed the recommendations for screening for syphilis from just being in the first trimester to being in the first and third trimester and at delivery. Mm-hmm. And um, the New York State has recommended that in their, um, through their HIV guidelines program, where they, they publish some syphilis and HIV guidelines. And have uh, we've, we've really promoted that recommendation through the CEI. CDC also sort of strongly encourages that approach given given the rise in syphilis cases. Uh, a little bit before 2020, um, there were some changes in, um, again, sort of in regulations and law that the state health department did in changing the definition of um, STIs so that HIV was included in the legal definition of sexually transmitted infections. And uh, because um, adolescents are able to access treatment and prevention for STIs, it meant that adolescents could access uh, PrEP and antiretroviral therapy and HPV vaccine mm. um, without ne- needing parental consent um, because of that sort of change in wording in the law. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Um- those all sound like they have the potential to really impact access for the better, which is really good to hear. Yeah, yeah. There, there's been, um, at both the federal and state level, I would say the last uh, two years have been very active. Like if you go onto the CDC's website and, and look at what's new, you come up with a lot of things that have been uh, released just uh, really even just in the last few months um, compared to some years past. So I, 
There is also a new um, national strategic plan for tackling uh, STIs mm-hmm. for really the first time ever. And uh, that was released on December 18th, I think. It was, it was in that week in December so in 2020. Mm-hmm. And that's been in the works for, for about two years um, and, and really um, went out for public comment a few months before the release. And really, from the STI perspective, is a is a pretty um, exciting, big picture approach to really tackling X- STIs in a very uh, broad way mm-hmm. with uh, support from lots of different stakeholders, and does address uh, some of the, the important concepts of of getting at the populations who are most at risk and um, addressing some of the social determinants of health issues mm. yeah. and stigma and, and also looking to science to, um, to really bring some innovations, um, both in probably new antibiotics and mm-hmm. vaccines and testing. So, um, so it, it, it's a pretty impressive document. Yeah. It's so important. And, I'd love to hear about how your clinic um, and maybe other clinics that you're aware of, but we can start maybe with your clinic. How, how was it affected by the pandemic? Well, like everything, uh, you know, it, it was a pretty dramatic effect, especially um, in the spring when, when really the, the whole community shut down. So we were, we were a walk-in clinic, so much like an urgent care or an ED, so you never knew who was coming or how many people would be here or how many people would be in the waiting room. Mm-hmm. So we have um, over time really come up with a series of different um, triage techniques so that we have sort of COVID is rampant kind of policies, middle COVID policies and COVID is low policies so that we go up or down, down in um, our triage methods so we we decided early on that um, we we wouldn't close and that um, we would attempt to keep everyone safe, pa- patients and staff. Mm-hmm. And so we essentially um, created uh, like a virtual waiting room in our parking lot. So we're we're in a setting where we're a freestanding clinic that does have a parking lot. Mm-hmm. So it used to be you just walked in, and now since COVID, we have initially a phone call. Um, from the door, it still it still can be walk in, but um, without prior appointment. But we do screening on the phone, and we attempt to minimize how many people are in the waiting room. And we've we've essentially created a series of waiting rooms, so that we don't have too many people. We're we're able to socially distance mm-hmm. our our um, our patients or clients. We also, in sort of the period of high COVID, um, did more telehealth. So we uh, did some syndromic management. So um, I mentioned that a lot of STIs are asymptomatic, but those that are symptomatic, you can make some educated guesses about what the causes would be. Mm. And we um, followed uh, some CDC guidance about um, best ways to treat syndromally with oral medications. And we could either dispense that medication at the door if we were trying to really minimize we had too many people in the waiting room or even dispense it to a pharmacy and the patient 
might even have the medication delivered to their home and, and never leave their home. Mm. Um, we've done less of that as COVID has lessened. Um, and initially, we also um, early on ended up just putting off routine screens. So patients that were feeling entirely well, but just wanted to be tested. Uh, maybe we're on a sort of a testing schedule of every three to six months. And we put some of those off or we arrange for some people to access home testing mm -hmm. through uh, another organization locally. But uh, really since um, early summer, we've not turned anyone away. We've, we've been able to accommodate everyone who's coming. But we do now have, um, I just looked at the figures for late December, we're still about 20% down mm. off of our pre-COVID volume. So that these are people not seeking care because we're, we're not turning anyone away. Mm -hmm. So it's 20% less uh, individuals seeking care, which uh, I'm assuming is because, because of COVID. Mm -hmm. that's, that's great. So it sounds like you guys have really shifted very quickly to doing um, really a combination of telehealth, social distancing and and still seeing in person and also just avoiding um, the clinical evaluation with diagnostic testing altogether for some things that could be done through syndromic management. Right. Okay. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that sounds like <laughs> such an important response mechanism to minimize COVID exposure. Have there been... Um, other, are there other pearls from the transition that would be helpful for clinicians to hear, including um, uh, specific treatment options that you have um, found to be more useful during this time? Um, well, one, uh, there were some some pretty uh, big changes in treatment. They so uh, we talked earlier about the treatment of uh, gonorrhea and the, the recommended treatment has been an injection. Um, so you really have to see the patient to do that, right? And when um, COVID was very, very high and um, we, we were in sort of a major community lockdown, we were using treatment, oral treatments for gonorrhea but at unusual doses um, so that the oral medicine, cefixime, is sometimes recommended as an alternate. Mm -hmm. And the recommended dose used to be 400 milligrams, but it, it was increased to 800 milligrams because of concerns about um, promotion of resistance, antibiotic resistance. And cefixime, actually, there were some supply issues. You can't always get yeah. a supply of cefixime, and that really varies by geography. So cefpodoxime, another oral cephalosporin, was also recommended um, as, an, as an alternate at a um, twice-a-day dose, 400 milligrams twice a day, I think is the dose. So pharmacists weren't really familiar with um, that high dose of cefixime. And so we ended up actually, when we would do an electronic prescription, we would have to put into the comments that this is a newly recommended dosing regimen by CDC mm. because we found that the pharmacists were um, the pharmacies were refusing to fill the prescription, and then the they would say we'll call your the ordering provider and you can come back tomorrow. So now we had a patient going out twice into the community right. during COVID when we're trying to avoid this. So so that was our intervention to make sure that we could. Um, 
alert the local pharmacies about this change. Mm-hmm. And that's not a medication that you typically carry in the clinic. It was not. Um, we, since this, we, we have started to carry it um, um, because it is the medication that's recommended for EPT for gonorrhea. Right. So when that became um, an option for us, we we, um, we were able to, to start ordering that. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing that experience during COVID. If providers wanted more information about how to manage STI diagnosis and testing during the pandemic, where can they go to access these resources, including some of the clinical management tips you mentioned earlier? Um, They could go to ceitraining.org, and um, we do... uh, we go in now by Zoom mostly, but we we will go into individual uh, providers' um, clinics or offices or even larger Grand Round kind of facilities and do training about STIs or about dealing with STIs during COVID or updated STI guidelines, that kind of thing. Uh, we also have a number of trainings we've already done that are archived on that ceitraining.org website. Mm-hmm. And we also, there's a CEI line number where uh, you can ask clinical questions. Um, and we've gotten a lot of questions through that CEI line about um, both uh, sort of tricky situations that have come up during COVID where uh, a couple of times we've been gotten calls about uh, syphilis cases where normally you would do a lumbar puncture. Mm-hmm. But because of the lockdown and the the remote location of that particular patient, there's no access. And ha- how do you handle these sorts of situations that just, you know, didn't normally come up pre-pandemic? Mm-hmm. So we've gotten a number of sort of, you know, what can we do given what we can do during COVID? And finally, I asked Margie about what she is most looking forward to in the field of sexual health in the coming years. I do think we're, we're sort of at the beginning of an ending the epidemic kind of approach to STIs. Um, so ending the epidemic, as you know, was, was, was the approach that New York State took to ending the HIV epidemic. And it's been tremendously effective in, mm-hmm. in my view. I, I know we're not fully at the goal yet, but it's it, it's really been quite amazing how when you um, take such a broad approach um, and, and really dig in uh, how well it's worked. And, and I feel like we're we're sort of at that point with STIs where there's there's that kind of momentum that, yeah. that we're going to tackle it on this multi-pronged approach or th- you know, really, really not not band-aids, but really tackle big issues. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's it's probably a pretty exciting time. You know, it seems like a seems like a hopeful time to me. I agree. In the STI field. That's great. I really appreciate you speaking with me today. Any positive change, a drug user health podcast, is part of the New York State Clinical Education Initiative, or CEI. We are funded by the New York State AIDS Institute to provide progressive continuing medical education for clinicians to enhance their capacity to deliver high quality healthcare services and to improve patient outcomes. CEI offers free CE accredited trainings, conferences, clinical technical assistance and tools on sexual health, HIV primary care and prevention, 
hepatitis C treatment, and drug user health. You can also speak with Dr. Margie Urban and other clinical specialists directly to discuss STI, PEP, PrEP, HIV, hepatitis C, and drug user health management by calling our CEI line at 1-866-637-2342. You can also find that number and more information at ceitraining.org.